0: Let me encourage you that if you have an opportunity on Wednesday to come here at at six forty-five uh, during Awana, and Awana has been so well attended, and f- great things happening with that on Wednesday nights, and I'm f- so thankful for everyone that's working with that. But uh, we also have a Bible study for anybody that would like to come for our prayer prayer time and Bible study. It starts at six forty-five, and we're talking about the doctrine of of encouragement, what the Bible has to say about how we can understand how the Holy Spirit, using the Word of God, making much of Jesus Christ, encourages. Let me encourage you to be here for that. Mark chapter 8, verse 31, we just read these words. He began to teach them. He began to teach them. I'm a slow learner. It just, it just, it's just been the pattern of my life. I'm, I'm slow to come around to learn things. Eventually I'll get it. But it takes a while. It it took me until grad school or seminary to actually really begin to learn how to study. Um, And I've often wondered, why is it that I don't really listen to the instructions the first time? The reason I struggled in learning is I wasn't listening to the instructions. You know, that manual that comes in the top of the box that you're supposed to look at before you put things together, Uh, taking time to actually read and heed the instructions, um, I think, well, I can figure this out myself. I don't need somebody else to teach me, but we do. This is really important that we understand that Jesus has some things to say. It's important for us to get. Immediately following Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Christ, this high moment, this continental divide of Christ's ministry Everything up to this point is pointed to him, who he actually is, proving who he is. And the rest of the way, all the way to the cross, he's preparing his disciples for what they will face in living for him. And it was at this moment, right after Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of God, that Jesus laid out incredibly important, pertinent instructions for his followers, not just the disciples, but as we see here in the context, including the crowd, that's us. Eventually, they, they did recall these instructions again and again, but at the moment, I don't know how well they were listening. Uh, these instructions really do provide for us formational direction. We need this. It will do us well to heed Christ's instructions regarding the gospel that then forms our commitment in discipleship. This forms why we do what we do and the way we live. Lord, would you take these moments that we have, settle my heart, settle all of us, to opening this passage of Scripture, Mark chapter 8, recognizing that What you have to say to these disciples really does have a huge bearing on how we respond to life today. May we live this out as we understand it and really listen to your instructions. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Many times Jesus said, follow me. We have that out on our church sign, following Christ. Many times this is stated in his instruction and preparation of his followers. Follow Jesus. And he said this knowing what was yet to come. He knows the future. He is God. So with that understanding, it would be good for us to really listen to what he has to say, wouldn't you think? So he begins to teach them. And there are three teaching moments that come out of this next conversation that Jesus has with his followers that I think would do us well to really listen to. The first one is this. Jesus communicated his plan for the gospel. This was laid out at, at the very beginning for the foundations of the earth. This plan was laid out for our opportunity to have the gospel. Look at verse 34. We read that, that he called the crowd to him with his disciples, and he said to them, excuse me, verse, 30, verse 31, excuse me, did I say th- verse 34? Verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man, this one that was prophesied all the way back in Daniel, this Messiah, this anointed one, this Christ, must, would you underline that little word? must. This is absolutely necessary. It has to happen this way. He must suffer. Now, why is that word must there? Because it's part of God's eternal plan. It's what God determined has to be. There's no other way given among men whereby we're having any opportunity for salvation. He is the only way. This gospel is all we've got. There is no other way He must suffer many things, be rejected, be killed. And notice what he tells them here. He tells them that he will rise again. So why is this a must? Why is this absolutely necessary? Without the substitutionary atonement, this Lamb of God that would die in our place and suffer and die and bear our reproach, bear our sin that we just sang about, He has to do this. No one else can do this. It's His blood that covers our sin. It's necessary. And it's necessary that there be the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ rising on the third day. It was absolutely necessary to defeat Satan, to crush the serpent's head, to fulfill God's promise of a redeemer. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's what we have, that Jesus Christ would suffer, be persecuted, be rejected, be killed on the cross. He doesn't say it here yet, but that's what's going to happen, and to rise again. In fact, he'll say this exact same statement two more times, three times in the total, in, in these next few pages of your scriptures, and yet they still didn't get it. It was so contrary to everything that they believed and everything that they had hoped for and everything they understood and expected to happen with the coming of the kingdom with the Messiah. So much so that Peter, speaking on behalf of the rest of the group, Peter said, no, Lord, you're wrong. That's not the way it's going to happen, not that way. And Peter, the same one who just a few moments before on this page, Just right before this, the one who said, you are the Christ, this Peter is rebuking him. And Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. You have man's interest in your heart, not God's. How often do we hear the truth? It goes in one ear and out the other. We don't really get it. We have been blessed here. To hear the gospel message, this story of redemption, this purpose for mankind, this reality, we have heard this gospel story again and again. And the question is, are you really listening? Do you get it? Are you understanding this instruction from our Lord? We are to be considering or having our minds fixed on the things that are of God. Come back to this again and again, my friends. Consider the gospel message. Consider how this fits with all of history. Consider how this is the, is the only hope we have. Consider that all the other religions are all works-based. We have the gospel which is based on the work of God for us. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. We don't have righteousness, and we can't produce that. He is the righteous, just one. And it's his gift of righteousness that he provides for our salvation. The deeper you dig into the gospel, the more you see the beauty of it. And you never get tired of it. I think in our mind we think, oh, I heard that when I was a little kid. I moved right on. We'll get to the deeper things. You can't get any deeper than the good news. Keep on digging to know more of this gospel message. Then we have a second instruction that Jesus provides for them. Jesus emphasized, by the way, because of the plan Christ had for the gospel story, we are able to have perspective about life. Now, the second instruction, Jesus emphasized the choices we must make for the gospel. Because Jesus did these things that he told them he would do, because of the gospel, we have three imperatives that Jesus brings up. Imperatives are commands. This has to happen. Not only does it have to happen that Jesus would come and fulfill his Father's will, go to the cross, die that horrible, Death on the cross, in our place to be rise the third day, be raised the third day, that had to happen. These things have to happen for the Christian. These are imperatives, these are commands. Deny yourself. take up your cross and follow me, Jesus says. That first imperative, deny self. I just want to ask a couple of questions about that. A good way to study your Bible is to read it, obviously, but then stop and ask simple questions, starting with who, what, why, when, where, and to what extent. Those are your basic understanding that open up much more understanding. So what is self? In one sense, self can refer to who we are, our identity, our person. Jesus had something to say about this or this is said of Jesus in first Peter chapter two verse twenty four. He might jot that reference down, first Peter two, twenty four. He himself bore he himself, the, the person of Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, what he provides. By his wounds we are healed. Isaiah fifty three. However, the context here in Mark chapter 8 points or refers us to understanding that self here is the fallen nature. It's referred to in our culture as self-esteem, we esteem self, but it's really that self-serving spirit that puts our self first. It's what the Bible describes as the old man or the old nature or the flesh. Take note of these two references as well in your notes. Uh, Romans 6, verse 6, and Romans 7, verse 18. Romans 6, verse 6, and Romans 7, verse 18. I'd encourage you to go back and just meditate on these two verses in being able to comprehend. This, so this is what's going on with myself. Romans 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to Nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. This body of sin, this old self, this old man. In Romans 7, verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. So it's the fallen nature, it's the sinfulness, that's that, that part of us that says, me first. That me first mentality, did you ever outgrow that? We all struggle with this. We have grandkids around a lot, and I've noticed something about grandkids. This is a favorite phrase that every grandkid has. But I want, and then they finish it. I want, and they start whining about what they want. It's just the way it is, they're born sinners. I want. It's the me first. I, I want the toy first, or, or I, w- I want my way first, or I want, to, I want to have what I want. Now, we get a little bit older, and we get a little bit more professional about how we express that, but we still are fighting with that same sin nature of I want. That's what we're talking about here when it's talking about self. When we're speaking of someone as selfish or self-centered or self-willed, it's that stubborn root of our continued sinfulness, our constant war of our will, I want, and that cancer, that moral cancer that must be brought to remission and remained in a position of denial. Jesus says, deny self. Well, how do you do that? That's my next question when I read something like this, deny self, that part of me that says, I want, like a child. What do we do with that? How do we respond to that? How do we deny self? How is that even possible? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you are thinking that already? I don't even know. How do you do that? An old Scottish preacher of a hundred years ago or so, by the name of D. Martin Lloyd Jones, preached he was preached um, a better part of his life. Prior to that, he was a medical doctor and he learned to think analytically and to think through questions and to study. And His preaching was powerful because he just opened up the Scripture to say what it was saying. I love that kind of preaching. But he had a book on spiritual depression. And you have a a link for that in your notes. I wish I could have had room for this whole quotation in your notes on your page there. But you can look this up, and I encourage you to to come back and meditate on this statement that I'm going to read here in just a moment. But he had a a passage in his book on spiritual depression depression as he's having an exposition of Psalm 42. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? That, that whole section that's there and also in the next chapter. And he said this, the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this, that we allow our self to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. We allow our self to talk to us rather than talking to self. You get the difference? He says this, Have you ever realized that the most most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself Instead of talking to yourself, speaking the truth to yourself. He goes on to say this, the main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle this problem of self, yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself. And then he says this, preach to yourself. Take the word of God and keep on declaring it again and again forcefully, passionately, like the preacher does when he's preaching behind the pulpit. You preach to yourself. You question yourself. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. That's What you're thinking, that's what you're hearing preached to yourself. Who God is, what God is, what God has done, and what he promises to do. And then having done that, you end on this note. You deny or defy yourself. You defy other people that are going against that truth. And you defy the devil. You put him in your place. You stand up to the devil. And the whole world... And say with this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance, who is the health of my countenance and my God. You preach to yourself. How do you deal with self? You speak to yourself the truth. You preach to yourself. You got that? So as Jerry Bridges, in a more recent generation, my generation, maybe a little bit before, before that, he took that phrase, preach to yourself, preach the gospel to yourself. And he, he wrote about that. He proclaimed that. And, and the number of preachers in these last couple of decades have grasped a hold of that, and that has helped us understand what it means to deny self. You preach to yourself, and then you respond to it as it is the truth. Deny yourself, preaching the gospel to yourself. Again and again, you review what this scripture says of who God is, what God is, what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Do you think this book answers those questions? That's what it's all about. In the beginning, God. So who is that? What has he done? What's he like? What does he insist? What does he want from us? And what is he going to do yet? And there's more to the story. And you preach that again and again to yourself. And then you deny that sinful nature because the truth is in your mind and you're preaching that again and again. Deny your rights. Deny lesser loves because your love for Jesus is greater than all of that. Because of the gospel. There's a second imperative given here deny yourself take up your cross the cross a grotesque reminder of the worst of atrocities of torture christian it may come to that does that bother you or are you prepared for that in verse 34 If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. We read in Luke 14, Jesus said, whoever does not come after me and carry his cross cannot be my disciple. This is a must. This is an imperative. Well, what do you mean by take up your cross? What does Jesus mean by that? Or bear your cross? Well, would you note this in the context here? Jesus has not yet, stated that he would be crucified. That's not in their mind. They're not even thinking of that. They've they've just heard him say he would be killed, but they they don't associate the cross with what's going to happen to him. So I think that's important to keep in the context here. But they were very aware of the cross. What was on their mind when they heard, take up your cross, was... Horrific persecution. In that time, during the time of the life of Jesus, around that time, it's my understanding that there were 30,000 Jews crucified by Romans. 30,000. That's the size of our entire city. 30,000 people crucified. This kind of persecution, this kind of torture... uh, originated, I believe, with the Persians, the, the uh, that which would be part of what is Iraq and Syria today now that this is the way they got the attention of their enemies and intimidated. And then it was further protect per performed developed okay, so I just got my cough drop caught in the wrong place, so I had to swallow there. It was further developed in such a way that the Romans were using it as their means of controlling the culture. And they did this all the time, up and down the streets, so to speak, in a public place where everybody could see this atrocity. That's what they understood when they heard Jesus say, take up your cross. Uh, I think at one time there were 800 people crucified at one setting. Another time, 2,000 Jews so they knew exactly what this meant. And the Romans had a way of putting this out on the highway so everybody, everybody could see it. It was very familiar, and it was their way of intimidating you to silence. That's happening even today here. Maybe not with crucifixions, but you're intimidated to not speak up about Jesus. Christian, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Realize what's at stake. And number three, follow Jesus. Follow me, he says. Intentionally take steps to follow Jesus. Putting his priorities up as your priority. This word for follow me, and that Greek verb form here, jumps off the page at them it means let him be continuing to follow me it's in the continual frame so you're to deny yourself that's an intentional decision You take up your cross, that's on purpose, you make up your mind, this is going to be the way it is, but then you are continually looking for ways to follow Jesus. In this present tense, you continue to follow Jesus. That word to follow has the idea of imitating. You understand this, a little boy following his daddy will try to step in his footsteps one after another. He's He's imitating the one he looks up to. Christian, follow Christ in that same way. That's the imperative. Take the next steps. Wherever you are on your journey, whatever your next steps are for Jesus, deny yourself, take up your cross, and do the next right step of growth for the Lord. For some, that may be taking the step of being baptized. We're getting ready to do another one of those here in just a couple of weeks. If you're thinking about that, take that step. Christian, uh, you may have a prompting of the Spirit to serve the Lord in a specific way. Take that step. Well, I can't do that. I don't, I don't know how to do that. I can't speak. or I, can, I don't know why but they wouldn't want. No, take that step. Do what God's telling you to do. I'll explain it to you a very simple way right now. This morning, you woke up, the sun was shining, beautiful day. You have that first cup of coffee, you're getting yourself awake a little bit, and then you're thinking, you know, I ought to go to church today. And you took that step. That's what it means to follow. And there will be many, dozens of those kinds of prompts throughout your week that you are prompted by the spirit to follow Jesus. Take that next right step. Respond to the gospel imperatives. Christian, because of Christ's imperatives of the gospel, we have purpose. Your life isn't just about pleasing yourself or making things happy for you or making a, your purpose is eternal. Your purpose is all about furthering the cause of Christ, and you follow him in his steps. And if we don't, the consequences are very troubling. Look at verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We have a third instruction in this text. Understand the gospel. God has a plan. Understand the imperatives. Something we need to respond to with this. Number three, Jesus knows the story will, knows how the story will end because of the gospel. Because he came the first time and did exactly what the Father ordained according to the purpose that he had planned all the way before the foundations of the world. Because of the gospel having been completed in Christ, it is finished. We know how the story will end. And when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. Wow. Some at that point will be very ashamed. Some will have confidence, not because of their own righteousness, but because of what the Lamb of God has provided them, his righteousness. And I want you to catch the note, the glimmer of hope within that statement that is underlined, when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. There's hope there. There's something more to the story than what we've experienced here. What is the gospel hope? That I can feel better about myself right now? that I feel like I've been moral and do the best I can, that the world would get better? It's not. What is our hope? He comes in the glory of his Father. He's coming again, and with that, he brings justice. Someday he will do things and make things right, finally. Justice. Sounds like a great name for a boy to be having for his life, justice. He's coming to perform justice. There's a day coming when justice will come. In Revelation, we read of this righteous coming of this one on a white horse in the glory of his Father. And we have perspective, and we have purpose, and because of the hope of the gospel, we have a promise we can count on, and it will get us through the hard times. He is coming in the glory of his Father. Will you take a moment to look back at how the Bible ends in Revelation 19, When Jesus used this phrase, coming in the glory of his Father with the holy angels, that he is coming, he knows exactly what it's going to be, and we have the privilege of having this book of Revelation that tells us exactly how it will be. This literal book in the book of Revelation with great prophecy of things yet to come. Do we understand it all? There's so much in the book of Revelation that just blows my mind. Yet it's very clear what Jesus says he will do. He will come in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And you start off the book in Revelation, and you you see the the current times, the things that were and things that are, these present times, this church age. And then you get to Revelation 4, and you see that John is caught up. Same idea of the rapture there, I believe. And he is able to see the unfolding of this eternal purpose of God on this earth and then there are seven years of really bad stuff but there are there's a group of people that have been caught up into heaven in order to prepare seven days or seven weeks for this wedding feast and it's a seven day preparation and then you have this chapter revelation 19 and the justice will come After he's caught up after the seven years' tribulation, we read in verses 1 and 2, and this I heard what seemed to be, after this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven already crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and what? Just. If you look up that word just, in fact, let me encourage you to do this right now or later on, I don't care. Google the word righteous and the word just. And it'll pop up that there's a definition of a Greek word that both those words are used, righteous and just. In fact, when you read your Bible in the New Testament and you read the word righteous and another time you read the word just, it's the exact same word. And it's speaking of someone that finally does it right according to what is right. And that is who our God is, and Jesus comes as the right, just one. Righteousness is the fulfillment of the law. Justice is the personification of that one who fulfills the law. You keep on reading. His judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his saints. You skip on down to verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and a bright, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges, in justice he judges, and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has the name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. You skip on down to verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh are his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Justice will come. We all crave for justice. And in this world, there is no justice. It keeps on getting worse, and those that are in power abuse those that are not in power. Yet, we know there is a day when justice will come, and it will be done right. And we know for a thousand years, Jesus will reign on this earth, and he'll do it right. That's what gets me through these days, because I know justice is coming. Christian, Dwell on the gospel. It's so good. Jesus told us exactly how it would be. He would suffer many things. He must suffer many things. Be rejected, be killed, and rise on the third day. Rise again. Dwell on that. Preach it again to yourself, again and again. And in that, you're denying yourself, you're taking up your cross, and you keep on following Jesus with every step of obedience because you want to please this one that you look up to that loves you so much. Keep on following him. And hang on to the hope. Look for Jesus coming in glory. No matter what's happening around you, what things discourage you, what you don't know that you're going to be able to get through, what you're upset about, remember this. You can dwell on the gospel. Nobody can ever take that away. And because of the gospel, you can deny self by preaching the truth to yourself again and remembering who God is, and you keep on following Jesus, and you look for his coming. And we'll get through this, and we will be able to say, it is well with my soul, and Lord, haste the day when our faith shall be sight me encourage you with the Word of God. Follow Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would take these moments that we've had to understand your truth is reality. May we find perspective, may we understand our purpose, and give us confidence in your promise. We pray this in Jesus' name.